a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. I am so glad you've come along to revel in wrong think and hang out with us for a bit. Going to have a lot of great stuff ahead of us today, too. In fact, I want to warn you, coming up in the next hour, I will be joined by James R. Harrigan, who hosts the uh, Words and Numbers podcast for the Foundation for Economic Education. He and Anthony Davies are the hosts, and they have some incredible, insightful commentary. And I'm going to be picking James's brain about a couple of different things. We're going to talk about conspiracy theories. We're going to talk about America's not-so-secret police and uh, anything else that happens to be on his mind. Again, that's coming up in the next hour. I wanted to start today with uh, with a little discussion about the free market and, in particular, competition. This is a dirty word to a lot of people. And in fact, it's, it's seen as very cutthroat. And, you know, this is just evidence of how, how capitalism exploits people. And, and, and you know, we, we compete. And I don't know. You know, look, I'm, I'm a small businessman. I mean, the smallest of the small businessmen in that I have my own business. But I have come up to the conclusion after years of thinking that, yeah, you know, let somebody else take the risk. Let somebody else work the uh, 90 plus hours a week to get their, their business going. Um, if you really want to succeed, if you want to create value for people, competition's got to be a big part of that. And and it takes a competitive spirit for people to endure the long hours, the low pay, and, and the incredible strenuous work that goes into building a business, which is not a bad thing. And one of the places where you will see uh, competition offering a very viable alternative to uh, government mon- monopolies is the space race. Now, I know we're not all building our own spaceships, right? Elon Musk, he's, he's uh, got a few more resources maybe than a few of us have. But John Stossel recently did a video about the private space race. And I'll have a link in the story where you can actually uh, go and check this video out for yourself but this is something that's been going on maybe a little bit behind the scenes. You and I haven't heard so much about it. Or maybe if you're very interested in it, you know, you, you've found the news feeds on this. I haven't seen that many headlines, but it's a fascinating story nonetheless. John Stossel reports this week, American astronauts returned to Earth. Their trip to the space station was the first manned launch from the U.S. in 10 years. And he asks the question, by NASA? And the answer is no, of course not. This space flight happened because government wasn't in charge. An Obama administration committee had concluded that launching such a vehicle would take 10, would take 12 years, rather, and cost $36 billion. But this rocket was finished in half that time for less than a billion dollars. That's one thirty-sixth the predicted cost. And that's because it was built by Elon Musk's private company, SpaceX. He does things faster and cheaper because he spends his own money. And Robin Zubrin, says John Stossel, uh, is an aerospace engineer who says this is the potential of free enterprise. Now, of course, years ago, NASA did manage to send astronauts to the moon. We just celebrated the 51st anniversary last week. That's all good and fine. But 
That succeeded, according to Robert Zubrin, because it was purpose-driven. America wanted to astonish the world with what a free people could do. But in the 50 years since, as transportation improved and computers got smaller and cheaper, NASA made little progress. Now, fortunately, President Obama gave private companies permission to compete in space, saying we can't keep doing the same old things as before. Competition then cut the cost of space travel to a fraction of what it was. And here John Stossel asks the question, why couldn't NASA have done that? And he says, because after the moon landing, it became a typical government agency, over budget and behind schedule. Zubrin says NASA's purpose seemed to be to supply money to various suppliers. Oh, that sounds familiar. Defense contractors, I'm looking your direction. Suppliers, of course, were happy to go along. Now, Zubrin once worked at Lockheed Martin, where he once discovered a way for a rocket to carry twice as much weight. We went to management, the engineers, and said, look, we could double the payload capability for 10% extra cost. They said, look, if the Air Force wants us to improve the Titan, they'll pay us to do it. NASA was paying contractors development fees and then adding 10% profit. So the more things cost, the bigger the contractor's profit. So contractors had little incentive to innovate. And the interesting thing here is John Stossel points out, even NASA now admits this is a problem. During its 2020 budget request, Administrator Jim Bridenstine confessed, we've not been good at maintaining schedule and at maintaining costs, nor is NASA necessarily good at innovating. Stossel says their technology was so out of date, according to Zubrin, that astronauts brought their laptops with them into space because shuttle computers were obsolete. So John Stossel asked him, when NASA saw that the astronauts brought their own computers, why didn't they upgrade? Well, because they had a philosophy that various components had to be space-rated, said Zubrin. Space rating was very bureaucratic and costly. So NASA was okay with high costs as long as spaceships were assembled in many congressmen's districts. Again, is this sounding familiar? Aerospace lawyer James Dunstan says NASA is a very large job program. By spreading its centers across the country, NASA gets more support from more different congressmen. Now, congressmen even laugh about it, says Stossel. Representative Randy Weber from Texas joked, we'll welcome NASA back to Texas to spend lots of money anytime. <laughs> Private companies do more with less money. And for in the instance of Elon Musk, one of his cost-saving innovations is reusable rocket boosters. I mean, did, did you realize for years NASA dropped its boosters into the ocean? And John Stossel asked Dunstan, well, why, why did they throw it away? Dunstan's replied, because that's the way it's always been done. Twenty years ago at Lockheed Martin, Zubrin had proposed reusable boosters, and his bosses told him, cute idea, but if we sell one of these, we're out of business. In other words, they wanted to keep the cost of space launch high. Well, thankfully, now that self-interested entrepreneurs compete, space travel will get cheaper. And Musk can't waste a dollar. SpaceX has to, has to compete with Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin, Richard, Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, and others. The point here, according to John Stossel, is that private sector, the private sector will always come up with ways to do things that politicians cannot imagine. Government isn't the ones that invented affordable cars, airplanes, iPhones, etc., it took competing entrepreneurs pursuing profit to nurture them into the good things that we have now. So what's the takeaway from this? 
Well, John Stossel says it's get rid of government monopolies. For-profit competition brings us the best things in life. You know, the funny thing about this is there are people who will vigorously defend, now, you know, none of these things would exist, though, without government regulation. As if to explain that the regulation itself is the reason that, uh, that any of these companies exist or are able to do business. I think that it's, it's a variation on uh, Obama's infamous statement, you didn't build that. Yeah, somebody else built that. Somebody else put that together. The implication being that, yeah, okay, so you may have a good idea, or you may have an innovative product, but if it weren't for the government building the roads, why, you and all those other people with their products and their stores and factories would just have to stand there looking at each other woefully from afar with no roads to get from your factory to that store or people, you know, to come as customers. You just have to stand there wringing your hands. What will we do? No one has built the roads for us. It's a perfect illustration of how ridiculous that, that dependent mindset can be. So welcome competition. I still think one of the best bits of advice that I've heard, I heard it many years ago from one of my listeners in St. George, is if there is something that you can open up the yellow pages, you know, back when we had phone books, if you could open up the yellow pages and find a particular business, excavation, whatever it may be, government really ought not be in that business. But you look at the municipal level or the county level or even the state level, and you'll find that oftentimes there's some crossover there, and it's kind of a strange thing. There are government enterprises that compete with private enterprise. Let as many things as possible be solved by the private sector, and you will find prices go down, the quality of the services go up, And it's all because of competition. For-profit competition brings us the best things in life. All right, we've got to take a break coming up here in just a moment. When we come back, we're going to talk about the word anarchy. You've heard a lot about these anarchists who are taking a terrible toll on cities like Portland and Seattle and so forth. And, you know, um, I sit back and I get just a little bit hot under the collar because I don't think anarchy or anarchist is necessarily a nasty word. And I certainly don't think it is, uh, in, it, it is appropriately descriptive of those uh, black-clad rioters and, and destructive little personalities out there running amok in our streets. We'll break down what the word means. Thomas L. Knapp has an excellent article about how the word anarchist really shouldn't be an insult. Now, I may not persuade you to change your mind, but at least you'll have a little broader understanding. We'll get to it right after we get back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. I'm very happy within the next couple of days, I'm going to be welcoming some new sponsors aboard, and uh, I hope you'll pay close attention to who they are. I hope you will uh, take the time, if you need their services, to seek them out above all others, or if you just know somebody who's in the market for what they have to offer, send them in their direction. There is, there's nothing that makes me happier than to hear that, uh, that uh, I've been able to connect people with a terrific service or product provider, uh, and, and the fact that they, they heard about it from me, well, it just, it's, it's good to be heard, but it's even better to connect up great people in that fashion. All right, let's talk anarchy. 
Now, this is a word that sends shivers up the spines of most people. And this isn't by accident. I mean, most of us have been very carefully indoctrinated to think of the word anarchy in the most violent, chaotic terms possible. And it doesn't help that the images that we see coming out of places like Portland or Seattle or Minneapolis are being described. Look at the work of these anarchists burning these cities to the ground. But I maintain that anybody who has even a sliver of intellectual curiosity and looks into the word anarchy will find that it's a word that's been given a bum rap. The distorted definition of an anarchist brings to mind that wild-eyed bomb thrower or that that black block wearing uh, little urchin out there, you know, throwing firebombs at the police or punching people in the face because they're not marching in lockstep with them. But the actual definition is considerably less sensational. Anarchy derives from the Greek words anarchos and anarchia. Broken down into its etymological elements, an, meaning without, and arcos, meaning chief, what this really comes down to is without ruler. Not necessarily without rules, just without some central ruler telling you, thus it must be. Now, for a lot of us who have been trained since childhood to view the government as kind of a hybrid parent-slash-god, the thought of not being ruled over is terrifying. And it, it shows in that submissive mindset that you'll find among far too many Americans who feel like I need to be told what to do. What's the right thing to do? And show, quick, someone show me an authority figure so I have something to do. The problem is we don't need to be ruled. And again, that's not the same thing as saying there doesn't need to be any rules. Why it's every man for himself out there on the road. You know, there was a, I, I can't remember the name of the, the village. In fact, I probably couldn't pronounce it if I could remember the name. Uh, but there was a, a village in Germany recently that uh, within the last probably five years suspended all of their traffic regulations. And you would think, well, there's an invitation for anarchy right there. I'm sure that uh, their, their little burg became nothing more than a big smoldering pile of automotive wrecks in short order. But it didn't. In fact, accidents largely ceased because the responsibility to be a safe driver was put back on the shoulders of the drivers. And, and the most interesting facet of what, what happened there was that a spontaneous type of organization took place. Maybe another way to put it is people figured out how to most efficiently accommodate the flow of traffic. How's that for a far cry from, oh, what would it be? It would be Lord of the Flies if, if we didn't have all these rules and signs and regulations and enforcers, you know, there to make sure that they stick. See, the problem is we've allowed ourselves to be convinced that lack of a ruler is the same thing as lack of rules. But I want to give you an example of how we don't just turn into animals because we don't have some bureaucrat or some politician or some enforcer telling us what to do. When problems arise, we can actually spontaneously adapt to those uh, those things with, with organization. And, and this happens more often than you think. A couple of years ago in Logan, Utah, a motorcyclist collided with and then was trapped underneath a car with, with fire breaking out. And I remember watching the video of, of this car starting to burn a nice BMW with this motorcyclist stuck underneath it. And there was a single policeman on the scene directing traffic, 
but it was the bystanders, without any prompting from that police officer, who spontaneously gathered around the car, lifted it up, and pulled the guy out from underneath it. And the point here is, nobody had to tell them what to do. These citizens just assessed the situation and then did what was necessary to save the man. And by the way, it was kind of interesting to see the police officer, of course, is telling everybody, stay back, stay back, stay back. And then finally, when they just surged on the car, lifted it up and started to pull the guy out, then the officer, okay, well, I'll help too. And he helped to, you know, keep the car off the guy. I thought that was really fascinating. Now, you contrast that with a couple of different cases, uh, firefighters in Alameda, California, handcuffed by a very inflexible policy who had to stand there for an hour as a man eventually succumbed to hypothermia in neck-deep water in San Francisco Bay. Now, to be fair, the guy was trying to kill himself, albeit slowly. But the excuse that they gave for not wading in and rescuing him, especially as he started to lose consciousness, budget cuts and city policy kept him from obtaining the necessary training and cold water gear. In the end, it was a private bystander who waded out and retrieved the poor man's body. But this isn't nearly as ridiculous as what happened in Britain a few years back, where a British man drowned in waist-deep water. He was floating face down in waist-deep water. It took rescue crews 45 minutes to put on their health and safety gear. And initially, a policeman and a paramedic who were on scene begged, just let us wade in and go save the victim. But they were ordered by their superiors, nope, we have procedures, we have policies, and this clipboard tells us what we must do. So if you want to make the case that, yeah, we need to be ruled in all things, that should hopefully point out maybe there should be some exceptions. And I think that we have this perception in some ways that, well, but at least we rule ourselves through our government officials. I don't know if we do. I guess, you know, if if, if you can look, if you're looking to forward to the November election with any sense of confidence that, yeah, this will be a chance for me to reassert what I need to, to see happen. Um, I, I wish you luck, but I sure don't feel that way myself. I feel like uh, we, we don't have much of any say or any influence in public policy. At this point, our best bet is just to to hang on. And frankly, uh, it's it's the anarchists who have the live and let live mentality Whereas uh, right and left-leaning politics, uh, or people who support right or left-leaning politics, seem to be under the impression, no, 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 we need the state to make sure to tell them what to do, or to tell you what to do. Not thinking for a moment about how eventually it's going to be uh, you being told what to do by others. Joseph Sobran, who was one of my favorite writers and just a remarkable thinker, also referred to himself as a reluctant anarchist. And and you would have to have read this guy's writings to understand. He's a very devoutly religious guy, um, very principled, a deep thinker, and, and I would say very conservative. So it's not like this guy was just this wild-eyed, pot-smoking libertarian who's out there, you know, you know, kicking around a hacky sack and doing everything he can to avoid responsibility. No, that doesn't begin to describe Joseph Sobran. Sobran became what he called a reluctant anarchist when he realized that no matter how we try to limit government, the bureaucrats and the power seekers always find a way. And he said, democracy has proved only that the best way to gain power over people is to assure the people that they are ruling themselves. Once they believe that, they make wonderfully submissive slaves. 
So when our rulers are fighting amongst themselves over powers that were never specifically delegated to them, over money that they don't even have, have you ever considered the option that uh, maybe you could opt out of it or you don't have to believe and you don't have to support exactly what they're doing? So we don't need to be ruled, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to suggest here. And, and I know that, uh, okay, well, I don't need to be ruled, but what about that person? Look, if you can rule yourself and if that person you're pointing to, if their behavior is peaceful, let them be. I know that's a hard thing. But let them be. We don't need to be ruled. We can rule ourselves. We can organize ourselves as necessary. And from that standpoint, maybe the word anarchy deserves another look. Because self-rule looks a lot scarier to me than what our democratically elected thugs seem to have in mind for us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. I want to thank you for being a part of my audience today. I know there are so many different resources out there, so many different voices that you could be listening to. The fact that you are tuned into this program or this podcast means the world to me. Thank you so much. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. And, of course, I encourage you to check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I have many, many wonderful notes that, uh, that I never even get to in the course of uh, a given hour of the show just because, uh, well, sometimes it's, it's easy to run out of time. So I'm on a little bit of an anarchist kick today. Not so much that I'm encouraging you be an anarchist, but I really want to explore the possibility that maybe that word is not the insult that we're expected to believe it to be. Thomas L. Knapp in an excellent piece I found published on everythingvoluntary.com, says uh, it's not an insult. Anarchist is not an insult. And he starts with a quote from President Trump on July 20th. These are anarchists. These are not protesters. This was him defending his decision to unleash Department of Homeland Security police on anti-police violence demonstrators in Portland. Anarchist bashing, referring to radical left anarchists in Minneapolis, ugly anarchists in Seattle, etc., has become a consistent Trump campaign theme since May. And the question Thomas L. Knapp has is, does Trump have any idea what an anarchist is? Or is he just hoping that frequent repetition of a word he associates with widespread fear and loathing will get an increasingly hostile American public back on his side? He says it's somewhat amusing that Donald Trump considers the word anarchist an insult or that he fancies himself morally fit to insult anarchists. Now, Thomas Knapp says he's got a lot of nerve, that guy. He's a head of state or in more accurate English, a second rate mafia don, a chieftain of an overgrown street street gang with delusions of grandeur. No, really, Tom, tell us how you feel. Trump and his type, he says, the leaders of political governments murdered hundreds of millions of innocent victims in the 20th century and already are off to a bang-up start in the 21st. Knapp says Trump and his ilk steal more wealth, destroy more property, and kill more of the people they claim to serve in any given week than all the anarchists in history combined. Now, just as a quick aside, he is right. Nobody kills like government kills, and so as, as loathsome as those rioters may be, uncontrolled government is a far more dangerous thing. 
And as Thomas L. Knapp points out, then they try to shift the blame onto their victims and onto the anarchists who stand up for those victims. Gangsters like Trump, says Thomas L. Knapp and his 44 predecessors, aren't morally qualified to shine a black block rabble rousers Doc Martens, let alone criticize the ideological anarchists who daily expose the protection racket called the state. He says anarchism comes in many flavors, but at its root, it's a simple concept. It calls for the absence of rulers. Notice that second R. Not an absence of absence of rules, rather, but of charlatans who empower and enrich themselves and their cronies on the false claim that they serve society by enforcing rules. 19th century anarchist Lysander Spooner, who, by the way, is one of the best, most, uh, most uh, mind-expanding uh, thinkers you'll ever read, exposed the American version of that racket, incidentally prophesying the arrival of Trump. This is what Spooner said, quote, Whether the Constitution really be one thing or another, this much is certain, that it has either authorized such a government as we have had, or has been powerless to prevent it. In either case, he says it is unfit to exist, end quote. Okay, there's a lot of stuff I agree with, with Lysander Spooner on. That one I don't agree with. But I do see his point. Either the Constitution authorized the government and the abuses that we are currently experiencing, or it's been powerless to prevent it. He sees the deficiency in the Constitution itself. I see the deficiency in the character of the people who are expected to uphold the Constitution as the rule book for government and the limit on its powers. And we have shirked that duty. So it's just a matter of he puts the blame on the document. I put the blame on we the people for straying from our uh, our foundational principles. Thomas Knapp says not all who hear who hear themselves called anarchists resemble the remark or deserve the praise. But he says high praise it is indeed. Anarchists are defenders of freedom and opponents of the death cult known as the modern state. Now, that's pretty challenging. It may even be a little bit provocative. And I don't for a minute think he's describing these black block rioters who are freaking out and destroying people's private property and and harming other people. You look around you at the staunchest defenders of freedom, and I mean people who peacefully, through persuasion, not through coercion, try to bring people to their side or, or do what they can to stand up for one another's freedom and respect of private property and freedom of conscience. More often than not, those people have a component of anarchy in the sense that they don't need to be ruled. Okay, I'm getting a bit strident, so I feel like now I'm, now I'm trying to convince you. I'm going to back off here. I think this is a concept worth considering. Whether you consider yourself an anarchist or not, all I'm suggesting is maybe don't allow that knee-jerk reaction. Anarchist, oh, that must be bad, because it may not necessarily be so. Just a thought. All right, moving on. Why is everybody wound up tighter than a watch spring these days? Come on, I've noticed it. You've noticed it. People get angry over the craziest things. Michael Snyder, writing for economiccollapse.com, says now Americans are rioting over mini golf and bagels. And I don't know if you saw the news story, but here goes. He says, have you noticed that people all over the country are starting to completely flip out for little to no reason, people are becoming violently angry, even over very trivial matters. And you never know when someone might erupt. 
One moment you could be talking to a seemingly mild-mannered middle-aged woman, and the next moment she could transform into a raging Karen. Now, he says, of course, I'm not singling out women in particular because of because most of the people who've been involved in the violent riots that we've seen around the nation in recent weeks have been men. People of all ages and backgrounds, though, are suddenly going completely nuts. And Michael Snyder warns what we have experienced is uh, so far is just the beginning. He says the mainstream media deserves a lot of blame for this. Because over and over they keep telling us that the riots are happening in our major cities, or the, rather that the riots happening in our major cities each night are, quote, peaceful. Well, look, your own eyes will tell you, everybody can see, they're not. In Portland, protesters have regularly been firing projectiles, vandalizing buildings and setting fires, and they have been getting, they keep getting away with it. Because other than Fox News, the major news outlets in this country put their full stamp of approval on what these rioters are doing, and that sends a very dangerous signal to everyone else. If it's perfectly acceptable for riots, or for rioters rather, to attack police officers, destroy buildings, and commit other acts of violence because they are offended by the system, then a lot of other young people out there are going to give themselves permission to violently erupt when they are, quote, offended by something as well. Here's a good example. There was just an incident in Memphis, Tennessee, where hundreds of teens started going on a violent rampage at a mini golf center because the game machines ate their cash. From the article, quote, A Tennessee mini golf center erupted in chaos Saturday night when three to four hundred teenagers began terrorizing staffers and smashing up the premises because the game machines ate their cash. That's according to Jam Press. The riot is seen at Putt-Putt Fun Center and Golf and Games Family Park in Memphis was caught on camera by an alarmed bystander and shows the violent teens go berserk and throw heavy objects at staff because they didn't issue the kids a refund. End quote. I've seen the video footage, by the way. You really should see it yourself. Someone posted a short clip of it on Twitter. There's a link in the article, which, again, will be posted in the show notes. A hundred years ago, Michael Snyder says, young people in America would never have conducted themselves in such a manner. And this is yet more evidence of how dramatically our culture has decayed. Then over on the East Coast, three male Karens completely freaked out, causing $13,000 in damage to a local bagel shop after being told they had arrived too late to get food. From the news story, footage released by police shows the suspects smashing up the Brothers Deli and Bagel in Diker Heights, Brooklyn, around 5.30 p.m. Friday, after workers had packed up and were waiting for their delivery men to bring the bikes inside. The video showed Tuesday, shared Tuesday, rather, shows the would-be customers knocking drinks off a shelf, flipping over snacks, and turning tables after seemingly realizing they were too late to buy food. Now, Michael Snyder says, in a civilized society, people resolve their differences calmly and peacefully. But he says, the truth is, we are becoming less civilized with each passing day. In fact, for many people, resorting to violence is becoming the number one and number one option. And taking uh, talking things out rationally, rather, is clear down the list. Down in South Florida, nobody's quite sure why a bunch of people in bathing suits started pummeling each other at a local casino. And by the way, that video of that, that particular brawl has more than 4 million views. He says, I suppose that shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us. Why are we wound up so tightly? We'll try to answer that question just the other side of these commercial messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. I've been sharing an article by Michael Snyder, published on LouRockwell.com earlier today, about how now Americans are rioting over mini golf and bagels. Now, this may sound like, okay, this is just news of the absurd, but the, the point that Michael Snyder is making is that people really are starting to freak out over some really minor things. In fact, as he was writing this article, he says, several lines penned by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament came to mind. Tell me if any of this sounds familiar. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such, turn away. I don't know, that sounds pretty uh, That sounds pretty on target for a lot of what we're seeing. Michael Snyder says, Everywhere you look, people are exceedingly angry. And we're starting to see Americans take out their anger on one another with frightening regularity. And this is the part that kind of got my attention. He asks, If things are this bad already, what is the U.S. going to look like when events really start to spiral out of control? He says, The way that we raise and educate our children really matters. For decades, most of the country has completely thrown out all traditional forms of morality, and we've raised our children to believe that they can define right and wrong however they wish. Our education system is a complete and total joke. Most children have been raised without any real moral foundation, and our culture relentlessly pounds a victim mentality into the heads of our young people. Michael Snyder says a society is only as strong as the sum of the individuals that make up that society. And right now, the lack of character in the United States is absolutely frightening. Yes, there are certainly lots of exceptions. In fact, he says, I know some truly wonderful people, but I just wish that there were a whole lot more of them. Unfortunately, the social decay that is eating away at our society, like a cancer, is getting worse with every passing year. Decades of incredibly bad decisions have brought us to this point, and there are no indications that our nation is going to choose a different course anytime soon. Now, I have to ask you this. What does that mean for us? To me, the obvious answer is it means that that our character, your character and my character, is what we need to be focusing on. Not who we're going to vote for. I mean, that's a part of the equation. But really, at the core of what really matters, getting your character squared away is the single most important thing you could be working on right now. Everything else will fall into place when you're doing that. And that, this is nothing new, okay? It's not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel here. Confucius said as much many, many years back. You want order in your community? You start by ordering your own inarticulate thoughts, rectifying your own heart. Then you set your household in order after you've set yourself in order. By setting your household in order, your neighborhood is set in order. Then your community, then your city than your nation. It just makes sense. I want to move on. There's one other, uh, there's one other article here that, that I just found fascinating. The title is America, both in crisis and on trial. Jarrett Stepman, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, asks the question, were the founding fathers heroes or villains? 
Now, he says, well, this dichotomy perhaps oversimplifies our attitude toward the founding generation. One would imagine that most Americans think their country's origin is fundamentally good. Few political movements in the history of the United States have truly distanced themselves from the founding. Many have tried to twist and distort the founding, but almost all successful ones have at least sought to hitch their wagons to 1776 until now. And his point is that a growing number of young Americans are not only ambivalent, but some are outright hostile toward America's America's national origin. A recent Fox News poll illustrated this disturbing trend. Poll respondents overwhelmingly said the founders were heroes as opposed to villains. However, when one breaks down the numbers by age, one notices a radical generational shift in views. As Josh Kraushar, columnist for the National Journal, noted on Twitter, Americans over 45 almost universally see the founders as heroes, and only a tiny number see them as villains. However, nearly the same number of Americans under 45, according to the poll, see the founders as villains as opposed to heroes. He's got a very interesting graph, by the way, that accompanies this this poll. Jarrett Stepman says, if one wonders why there is such a ferocious effort to tear down statues and erase America's past, that explains the phenomenon to a large extent. Many young Americans have been marinated in a stew of hostile version, uh, versions of America's past based on the teachings of the late radical historian Howard Zinn and many others of the new left. Either that or they simply know nothing at all as civics knowledge collapses. And the result is a militant wing of young people hell-bent on putting an end to America and the West. Now, on the other hand, he says you have a shrinking number of young Americans who can even articulate what they are trying to conserve in America. They now feel overwhelmed and pressured to go along with a ruthless cultural revolution that tolerates no dissent. In a battle between zealots and perhaps larger numbers of uninformed or uncommitted, Bet on the zealots. Jared Stepman says the summer of 2020, if anything, has exposed how late in the game this culture war is. These really are the times that try men's souls. However, he says, as dark and foreboding as this moment may seem to patriots who still cling to the idea that America is a flawed but ultimately great and exceptional country, it at least provides clarity. He says, the war on history, as I explain in my book, The War on History, The Conspiracy to Rewrite America's Past, is not about any particular figure or statue, nor is it simply about correcting a past wrong to build a stronger future. No, Jared Stepman says it is about the toppling of the foundation of this country. It's about sweeping away America's past, both its institutions and culture, in an effort to begin again at year zero. In his first famed inaugural address in 1801, Thomas Jefferson spoke to a nation deeply divided, where one political party or faction really replaced another. Jefferson calmed the country by noting that we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists, the two political sides of that time. He said that while there were serious disagreements over the issues of the day, most Americans were committed to Republican self-government, the principles of 1776. Now, Stepman says Jefferson may have harbored deep suspicions that his opponents were closet monarchists, but his statement hit the mark. Certainly he was right that every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle, and that attachment to the principles of the founding remained strong no matter how they were interpreted. But as Jarrett Stepman asks, can we say that today? On this issue, like no other, he says, a line must be drawn. 
America is more diverse today by ethnicity, race, and religion than it has ever been. If the once nearly universal attachment to our history and ideals, the very reason for America's being, comes undone, it will be impossible to hold on to the concept of e pluribus unum, out of many, one. Our history, the good and the bad, binds us together. Our attachment to the founding gives us unity of purpose, despite the country's remarkable diversity. And he says not only that, but the ideas attached to that founding, even if not often, even if not always adhered to, have given us the remarkable ability to correct wrongs and to stand strong in the face of great evils, both at home and abroad. The American way of life bends toward justice because we have a just system. So he says it's essential right now for Americans to stand fast in the face of this looming revolution that would ultimately deliver us into tyranny. We need to better prepare and inform ourselves so that we may explain our reason for being in debates with our fellow citizens, as long as debate and dissent are still allowed and protected. Now, he says, for those looking for a better way to defend the founding, an excellent source of material is a new book, America on Trial, A Defense of the Founding, by Robert R. Riley. He says, Riley deftly defends the very essence of what America was built on from critics on the left who are dedicated to its destruction, and even some on the right who are misguided in thinking that the radicalism of today stems from 1776. He asks rhetorically in his introduction whether America was founded on basic principles that are true and just, ones that we can unqualifiedly support, or whether the republic was based on ideas that are false and unavoidably lead to corporate and individual evil. Now, the left increasingly answers that question with no, and those who disagree are quickly canceled. Jared Stepman says, look, these are not the days for sunshine patriots. This is our moment of clarity. Will Americans embrace that light in the darkness in the face of critics at home and the challenge of a rising superpower across the Pacific? Or will we fade into the long night of history as our country and the world plunges into a new dark age? He says, we have hard work and troubled times ahead. Many will shrink from the face of the ruthless woke mobs empowered by the steady drumbeat of support coming from America's elite cultural institutions. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered as a great American pamphleteer once said. What we do now and what we say now may very well determine whether 1776 and the great country we've inherited stands or falls. This is The Brian Hyde Show.